0: Matthew chapter 15, there was a Fort Worth contractor recently that went to 2700 Forest Park Boulevard uh, to gut a home for the uh, owner. Now this is a neighborhood, an older neighborhood between Southwestern Seminary and uh, TCU, Texas Christian University. And he arrived and on the curb there was the address, 2700 Forest Park Boulevard. And he got into the home. In fact, the owners did not give him a key. They just said, bust the door down. And so he did. Well, actually, he wasn't there. His, um, his fellows, his, his employees were there. They busted down the door, and they gutted the house. They tore out everything they possibly could, every appliance, every fixture, whether it was in the bathroom or the kitchen or um, lighting fixtures in the ceilings. They tore up the sheetrock and stripped it all the way down to the framing They tore up the floor, everything they could, and they left after a few days. Imagine their shock and surprise when they got a phone call to learn they had gutted the wrong house. They were right that 2700 Forest Park Boulevard was on the curb outside the home. What they didn't understand is that that was not the address of the house. That was the block of the home. They were uh, What they did is that they tore up not 2,700 Forest Park Boulevard, but 2,736. And in small numbers, it was right above the door and everyone missed it. What's worse is that the home they gutted was under contract to be sold for more than $360,000. That's right. Uh, well... They, uh, the contractor actually ended up calling the police and saying, look, I've made a big mistake. And uh, they were in contact with the owners. They're working it out. No arrest, no charges have been made. Uh, the contractor may buy the home himself uh, or may repair it. They're in discussions and negotiations about what to do. But uh, he was entirely sincere and honest with what it was that he did. Well, speaking of homes, George MacDonald, who was probably the biggest influence upon C.S. Lewis and his conversion as far as authors are concerned, used an illustration one time about a home. And he said, what God is doing with every believer is that God is taking the life of that believer and shaping it into a palace for the King, Jesus Christ. And it may surprise some people what he will do with that home called the human heart, the human life. There are some things he will gut. There may be a few things he leaves. There are many things that he will strengthen. Uh, Many things he'll replace. Because what he is doing in the life of the one following Jesus is that he is building that life into a life that is a palace for his very own son, Jesus Christ. And there is no expense... There is no expense that he will spare to make it precisely what he wants for his son. And that's often much of what we find in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. And this is a very surprising text. Here, Jesus heals the daughter of the Canaanite woman. Mark will call her a Syrophoenician. That's the first century term, but the word Canaanite goes back to ancient Israel, and both are accurate. She's in the region of Tyre and Sidon, outside the official boundaries of Israel in a Gentile-dominated land. And by healing this woman, son, a daughter, we find there are five surprises in the text before us. Beginning in verse number 21, we find here first a geographic surprise. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He went on... And he found a woman from Canaan, a Canaanite woman. The very people that Israel ran out of Israel and dispersed and scattered them outside the promised land. Well, so that Jesus went even to Tyre and Sidon to minister and serve this Canaanite woman is a remarkable geographical surprise. He, he's left Israel and gone to Tyre and Sidon. And, and that's an awful lot like saying, Someone has left ministry in Georgia with sweet tea and peach cobbler and Baptist churches and gone to Seattle, the land of vampires, werewolves, and witches. We can put it there. No no offense to those of you from Seattle, but Seattle is not Georgia at all. Well, this is much of what Jesus is doing. He is going to the northwest of the region. And so there's an awful lot of evil connotations to the notion of Tyre and Sidon and Canaanites. Um, God had offered these very people plenty of opportunities, six centuries full of opportunities to repent and get right with him. And he's sending his son for one last effort to Tyre and Sidon. They get another opportunity to prevent, uh, to repent. And this is an, actually a preview of what the apostles will do after the resurrection in covering up the earth and preaching the gospel. So there's a geographic surprise. But in verse 22, there's a theological surprise. Look how she says, uh, what, what she says to Jesus. Behold, a woman of Cana came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David my daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, these terms and these titles for Jesus are rather commonplace among the Jews and among Christians, but for these to roll off the lips of a Canaanite woman is surprising. She calls to him, Lord. In fact, she will say, Lord, three times in this text, we'll see. Uh, That's that's the Greek reference. That's the, um, uh, the word is kurios, and it's used to translate uh, the very lordship of God in the New Testament. And so she's saying something about the deity of Christ, and then she uses the Jewish phrase, Son of David. You have rightful claim to the throne of Israel, which is the throne of the entire universe in God's way of arranging the universe. Uh, She reveals from her heart what's really there in her faith reminds me of a pastor in savannah georgia i visited 10 or 12 years ago and his uh church had developed quite a ministry to the savannah school of art and design and one of the students that had come to the church bull street baptist church there in savannah was a young man who was tattooed and pierced through every place on his face he had metal piercings everywhere which the pastor said is rather typical of freshmen and sophomores there at the school. But when they start looking for a job as juniors and seniors, some of that is is removed. But anyway, this young man is there. He's he's faithful. He's consistent in coming. And one Sunday morning, he walks down the aisle during the invitation, which you'll have the opportunity to do that today as well. But he walks down the aisle uh, during the invitation with a young lady. And the pastor thinks they're both coming to come to know Christ. And the young man comes up and talks to the pastor and says this, My name is Pierce. Really? I can't make this up. My name is Pierce, and I've been talking to her about Jesus. And I got to lead her to Jesus Christ just a few days ago, and she's coming for baptism, and she wants to be part of this church. Is that not remarkable? You've got a full-fledged disciple of Jesus Christ reaching out, seeking to make a difference. And the language on his tongue says something about the condition of his heart. Now, we know people can be fake. We, We understand that. But ladies and gentlemen, that's what we have here in many ways. We've got the surprising reality that a Canaanite woman, the first century equivalent of somebody that might be pierced all the way through, is actually confessing Jesus as Lord and as the Son of David. There's a theological surprise here. Then there's a ministry surprise here. And and it's it's a little disturbing, but it's deliberate as well. If you begin reading in verse number 23. But Jesus answered her, not a word. And His disciples came and urged Him, saying, send her away, she's shouting at us, one translation says. She's crying out after us, but he answered and said, I was not sent uh, except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs, the house pets. Well, Mark says that she was a Greek woman in Syrophoenicia. She was probably part of the upper classes, which tended to raid the fields of the Jews to collect their wheat to turn into bread. And here Jesus is saying, it's not right for us Jews to give you the theological salvation bread at this time. That's not appropriate. This is deliberate. To some people, it is disturbing. What in the world is Jesus doing here? There are a couple of things Jesus is doing here when he refuses to speak a word and when he's resistant to ministering to her. One is that he is imitating the disciples' attitude towards the Gentiles. And maybe even the church that's reading this to whom Matthew was writing. They had a poor attitude towards the Gentiles, uh, the Jews did, in anyone that was outside the covenant of Israel that did not have that ethnic racial historical identity with the God of the Old Testament and so Jesus speaks not a word and I don't condemn Jesus here because quite frankly there are a lot of folks won't speak a word to him today or to others and so Jesus is reflecting in mirroring the hard attitude that his disciples have towards other Gentiles but there's a second thing he's doing here as well He's examining the woman's faith. Let me ask you something. How do you feel when you can't have something? What happens when someone says you can't have something? It makes you what? Well, it reminds me of the fellow that was on his deathbed. And they had plenty of opportunity to plan his funeral. And he was upstairs, and he smelled down below in the kitchen his wife making his favorite cookies. And so he struggles to get off the bed, and on hands and knees, and sometimes on his belly, he crawls down the stairs, injuring his elbows and knees all the way. And the smell of these cookies grows stronger and stronger, and his desire grows more and more, and he slides into the kitchen, and he gets close to the counter where they're cooling, and he reaches his dying gasping hand up onto the counter and all of a sudden he feels a slap a spatula and his wife looks at him and says you can't have those those are for your funeral <laughs> you know i don't care how close you are to death you want the cookies the, the syrophoenicians were fond of mixing religions. They they were not a lot different than Hindus. They, They would not exclusively commit to one. They would only add is what they would do. And Jesus is testing her faith here in this text to see just how sincere she is to see if genuine faith will rise up when she places faith in Him. Now, there's also maybe a little bit of humor here that's hard to pick up on in the 21st century. But this is not unusual for a Jew to do with someone. He, he may be teasing her a little bit. In verse 24, he may be saying, I wasn't sent to anyone but the, you know, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Or it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to little puppies around the table. With, with something of a smirk on his face, something of some humor in his voice. I don't have a lot of time to unpack this this morning. I may do this later on a series about the humor of Christ because there are some gut-busting funny things that Jesus says in the biblical text. But what I have got to emphasize at this point is never, ever, ever become so hypersensitive that you cannot have a sense of humor. There's actually a certain form of humor that we use an awful lot and, and that's what I call, I don't know if anyone else calls it this, but I call it insult humor. If, if someone generally likes me, they will go to the point of insulting me. And that's what we do. We were trying to explain this in Fort Worth to some of our Canadian students and some of our students from outside the southern United States. And one fellow that got it said, yeah, I'd be insulted if I weren't insulted. So let's be real careful that we do not get to the point where we're so uptight and so politically correct that we cannot engage in right humor. Now, racial jokes are never never appropriate. We don't make fun of the creation of God or how God has made people. We we, we don't do that. We, We don't make fun of people because of their gender. We don't do that kind of thing either. But there is something of that here in this text. So there's a ministry surprise. But then there's a verbal surprise. Verse 25, she came... And worshiped him. The the word is actually kneeled. She she bowed before him, saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. She she's verbally putting herself and physically actually in a position before Jesus of submission. Matthew's readers would have seen worship of him, which is not a bad translation in verse number 25, as she seeks persistently to get a blessing from him. And then there's an emotional surprise look what jesus says in verse 26 it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs now jews oftentimes would refer to gentiles uh, as a dog now these weren't typically your house pets they were savage dogs that often attacked small children and sick people and others and one another by the way but that's not the word that's used here in this text there were other dogs in israel in the ancient world that were house pets, uh, that did sit under the table and eat the crumbs that fell from the table. And that's the term that Jesus uses here. So it's not a criticism. It is a word of affection for this woman. And she said, Yes, Lord, and there's the third Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, Now this is great. This is very emotional in this text. Look, all woman, And I I wouldn't be surprised a bit if his voice trembled a little bit. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. And his daughter was healed from that hour. There is a great movement on the heart of the Savior whenever he sees that this woman, the most unlikely candidate in all the earth, places faith in him to come through for her family and her little girl. So there's an emotional surprise. Warren Wiersbe says of this, this woman has great faith. Everything was against her. Her race because she was a Gentile. Her sex because she was a woman and rabbis would not speak to women in public. The disciples appear to be against her. Her faith is great. She penetrated through all the obstacles. There are five surprises here. Now look, Whenever you embrace Jesus Christ as master and savior of your life, you need to know that what you signed up for is that you signed up for a journey with a savior who thrives on surprises. He does. And so it's very possible that texts like this and others may very well obliterate what you currently think about Jesus. It's entirely impossible. Jesus is full of some surprises. Now, how does he surprise some today? Well, there are a couple of ways. One, Jesus surprises some with the messes he reaches. With the messes he he reaches. Hey, I've got good news. If you're a mess, or if you know a mess, Jesus reaches the messes. Not just the messes. Jesus reaches the messes the message. Psalms 51, 17. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Jesus Christ is attracted to tears. Jesus Christ is attracted and has an affinity for humility. Jesus Christ loves to get in the middle of brokenness with any person that is humble before Him. There is good news. Jesus is not intimidated by anybody's mess. He's an expert at handling every one of That's what he does with this Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon. In verse 21, he intentionally and purposefully travels to Tyre and Sidon to give this woman and those people time. Now, if you're curious and interested, how in the world can I improve my witness and my walk with those outside the Christian faith? How can I persuade and convince them to turn to Jesus Christ? Well, much like Jesus did, he showed up. And that, in and of itself, was wildly positive. Uh, re- research, recent research has shown that the more non-Christians know of actual Christians, the more warm they grow towards them. Now, that's true for everybody. Once they see that you're not a fire-breathing, people-eating monster, it makes a big, big difference. They tend to believe the personal relationship more than they believe the media or the cable stations. And so that makes all the difference in the world. We need to be like Jesus and seek to reach those who are outside the Christian faith. And the only adequate expression of the faith is to take initiative in reaching others. Look, if you're waiting for someone to come up and ask you, how can I come to know the Lord? Or how can I be saved? You're going to be waiting a long, long time. They just don't do that. And rarely have they ever done that. It happened one time in the New Testament after a synchronized earthquake and we're not having many of those lately you see and so we've got to take the initiative in fact waiting and living in silence and not going to our own Tyre and Sidon is actually a denial of the Christian faith and so that's why Mark's 26 is so vitally important we're asking you to invite your one there and to fill out a card that you have received the last two weeks place it in the offering plate today and make a commitment to do it in fact I go a little further You start wherever you are in seeking to invite people to come. But um, I've sought in the last year to make friends with people that are outside my demographic. And so in the last year, I've sought to make friends with a couple of Iranians, with some Egyptians, and some others because God loves them. If Jesus is willing to go to Tyre and Sidon, I can certainly go places throughout our region to make friends with others And seek to share the gospel. So Jesus surprises some with the messes he reaches. But second, Jesus surprises some with the message he preaches. And there are several elements to this message in the text. One, there is a person we trust. There's a person. The gospel message, the message Jesus preached, centered on himself. He is Lord and he is the Son of David. He is Lord, meaning he is God He is as much God as the Father and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, He is able to save. He's also the Son of David, which means He has the rightful claim to the throne, a rightful claim to lordship. And no one else can make that claim other than the Son of David, Jesus Christ. And so this obliterates the patronizing nonsense that Jesus was merely a good teacher or a good prophet. You know, the qualification for being a good teacher is what? You tell the truth. And Jesus claimed to be God. He acted like God. He forgave sins. He received worship in this text. And he uh, used words that uh, communicated to others that he's God. He said, before Abraham was, I am the personal name of God. And then he said, I'm the bread of life. I'm I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the resurrection in life. And, and the scripture ascribes to him the title uh, Alpha and Omega, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which are Old Testament titles for God himself. And, and so the first qualification for being a good teacher is that you tell the truth. I would agree that Jesus is a good teacher, but he's so much more. He is actually God in human flesh. But there's another problem with the notion that Jesus is merely a good teacher, and, it's, and that is this. It is insult. By understatement. When you say Jesus is a good teacher, you're entirely correct, but you're not saying enough about Him. Not saying enough about Him. It's like Mark Twain in his understatement. He said, I did not attend this man's funeral, but I sent a letter saying I approved of it. Really? Is that all you've got to say? Okay, all right, all right. After a virgin birth and a sinless life, and a crucifixion for the sins of the world and resurrection from the dead, all we can say is he's a good teacher. Oh, what grotesque understatement. Turn, turn a few pages back to Matthew chapter 8 and verse number 29. And I want you to see another surprising uh, person that got who Jesus was. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29. In verse 28, he meets a couple of demon possessed men. He cast them out, and in verse 29, look what they say. Matthew eight twenty-nine, And suddenly they, the demons, cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? These are the demons crying out against Jesus, and they get three doctrines right. Jesus' purity, Jesus' deity, and Jesus' wrath. Ladies and gentlemen, if demons can get it right, why can't the human race? Even demons get it right, but they go a step further, James said. They even tremble. So Jesus' message insists that he is worthy of everyone's trust, even if it surprises some. So there is, in his message, a person we trust, but then there's also a path we enter. As I said before, the... Canaanites, the Syrophoenicians, were fond of mixing religions. They always practiced uh, addition and never godly subtraction. They would always add one God on top of the other. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, however, in a similar context, Peter said, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul would say later, in a similar context, in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Now, a few things about that, about Christ being the only way. He is the only path, the only way to enter into a walk with God. First, Christians did not invent this doctrine. We've been criticized We're being narrow and exclusive and working for our own self-interest. Folks, if we had invented the doctrine that Christ is the only way, or if we were going to invent a doctrine about how many ways there are to God, we would have never said Jesus is the only way. Oh, no. We would have never said anything that would make us unpopular. We would state that Jesus is a way along with all the others so that we could have friends and we could um, get along with everybody. We would have never invented the doctrine that Jesus Christ is the only way. The fact that it is so narrow and so exclusivistic is witness to its divine origin, not its human origins. But there's another problem with this. Christ is not being stubborn when He says, I'm the only way. He's being very real. There is no salvation in the other faiths. There's no more salvation in the other faiths than there are sub-freezing temperatures in fire. Then, then there is cow's milk and lettuce. See, it, it, it just isn't there. Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam do not offer a salvation where God intervenes on behalf of the sinner and saves that person by grace. That, that doesn't exist. And that leads us to another consideration, Matthew 26, 28. Jesus said when serving the Lord's Supper, he served the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for the remission of the sins of many. And we know from Hebrews nine twenty two, without the shedding of blood there is what? No forgiveness. In other words, God requires a death penalty for humans to be saved. And thank God Jesus served it. In Matthew 28, 6, uh, the angel said to those who visited the tomb, He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he lay. That tomb is empty, and I'd rather follow someone living than someone dead. How about you? You see, these are excellent reasons to believe Jesus is the only way. This is the path in which we enter into a righteous walk with God and into heaven. In Bangalore, Maine, they have a half marathon that's rather uh, popular there. One year, the three leading runners were following their pace car, and the pace car made a wrong turn and traveled for two and a half miles off the path. The runners finally discovered it when there was no more crowd watching them run the half marathon, and they had to borrow money to get on a bus to go to the finish line. Now, look, as they were running out of the way for two and a half miles, they were entirely sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. God does not judge faith merely by sincerity. It's got to be sincere, but it's got to be right in the right direction, and Christ is the only path to God. The person we trust, the path we enter. Then there's a promise that we claim. In verse 28, Jesus said, "'Great is your faith.'" Let it be to you as you desire. Faith. We entrust our sins and our eternities to to Him, and we let Him fix it. There was this um, one fellow whose printer had fallen into disrepair, and he called a company to repair it. And over the phone, the repairman told him how to fix it. And he said, that won't be any charge. He said, really? Is that the kind of business model that you use? He said, yes. You mean you're willing not to make money just to tell me how to repair my own printer? He said, yes. He said, whose idea was that? He said, it's the boss's idea. He said, what kind of business model is that? He said, well, what we figure is this. We usually make more money on repairs if we let people try to fix them, their printers themselves first. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> you need to understand something. The, the question this morning is not, do I have the knowledge and the skill to fix myself before God? That's not the question. The question is, does Jesus, and will I trust Him? Listen, if you try to make yourself right with God by your attitude and religious practice, by your performance, you're going to get worse. You're going to make yourself worse. It's what the Bible calls self-righteousness. Now, you you may be very naive about that. You you may not not mean anything by that. But but the Bible teaches that self-righteousness. You've got to count that loss and turn to Him. You see, Jesus has the skills and the ability and the worth and the merit and the justification and the power to make you right with God. And so you don't try more, you trust Him. That's how to be made right with God. That's how to walk with God in the power of the Spirit. That's how to be useful and effective. In other words, trusting Him starts the life of righteousness. It starts the Christian life. It fuels it all the way through, and it caps it off in the very end when we see Jesus face to face, when faith is made sight. So does Jesus have the skill and the knowledge to make this happen? Oh, you bet. At the end of verse 28, it says, And her daughter was healed from that very hour, and in this very hour, God can take care of you. Now, some might complain, well, that's old-fashioned and that's outdated. Hey, look, the sun's old-fashioned, but without it, we grope in darkness. The air is old-fashioned, but without it, we would gasp and die. Water's old-fashioned, but without it, we would grow dehydrated and we would go mad. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is, sin is as evil as it's ever been. Hell is as hot as it's ever been. Heaven is as sweet. Salvation is as free as it's ever been. Nothing important has changed at all. Jesus has not revised the terms of salvation in walking with Him. We trust Him and cast our souls before Him. And Norman McCorvey this morning is very happy that this is true. You, you probably probably don't know the name Norma McCorvey, except for a few of you. You would know her better by her name that was presented before the Supreme Court back in about 1973 as Jane Roe. Norma McCorvey was the Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade. And there, her attorney argued that she had been gang-raped and should have a right to an abortion. The problem is, is that Norma McCorvey lied. She admitted later before in congressional testimony that she had lied and that the entire Roe versus Wade case was based upon a lie. But in those years, more than 50 million unborn children have lost their lives in the United States alone because of that Supreme Court decision. Well, she was working for an abortion clinic, and I believe it was a duplex where they were located in the office next to Her office was available, and a pro-life group moved in. And you remember the Beamer brothers that did uh, that property show? Well, their father moved in and began to share God's love with her, began to share the gospel, take her lunch. And she was a bit surprised at first, and then when he had the opportunity to speak with her, he would share with her the goodness of Christ and his own failures. And it confused her. She didn't realize at the time, but he was witnessing to her and sharing the gospel with her, but using his own failures, his own rebellion, in order to magnify the grace of God and to communicate to her that he was a great sinner himself and that if God would save him, he would save anyone. And after a while, Norma McCorvey gave her heart and life to Jesus Christ. She said to the pro-choice, the pro-abortion crowd, she became nothing more than a name, a piece of white trash. No one wanted to have anything to do with. But she was won by love through Christians and a God who knew her name and loved her that way. Norma McCorvey passed away this week at the age of 69. And Can you imagine her entrance into the kingdom last week when she stepped in and saw 50 million unborn children there, welcoming her with grace and love. Because there, there are no tears, there's no guilt, there's no sorrow, there's no sadness. When you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, you get the same grace as she did. Nothing important has changed. You're not so good that you don't need this. You're not so bad that you can't have it either. Why don't you come today? give your heart and life to the Lord Jesus. He'd love to love you all the way. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your great promise where you said, ask, it shall be given to you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, the door shall be open to you. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father, who is in heaven, knows how to give good gifts to those who trust Him. Thank you, O God. That every person here today can know the Lord Jesus. Every person here today can have the cancellation of their sins. Every person here today can have a new day in the power of the Holy Spirit. A day of victory because of Jesus. In fact, Jesus can make a great surprise out of our lives. And we want to thank you for those truths. And I want to pray for friends today that you would help them turn to you, embrace you, and say yes. Help them to stop trying. Please disabuse us of a naive sense of self-righteousness and power. Don't let what little goodness we have get in the way this morning. And we're going to sing. And as we sing, our staff will be here. And we invite you to come. If you need help in making a spiritual decision, you need someone to pray with you. Why don't you come? I'm going to finish my prayer. And it's your time. God will meet you. Trust Him. He didn't spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. He'll freely give you all things if you will trust the Lord Jesus.